Hey Sylvie, how you doing? Hey, I'm good. You know what? I had a moment the other day. I really think I need to stop relaxing my hair. After what, 16 years? I know. I just... Basically, what happened was... I watched this documentary on Channel 4 called Hair Power. It was by Emma Dabiri. She wrote, Don't Touch My Hair. My hair is a massive part of my identity. In this life, if I'm going to work to fund something, it's going to be my hair. Black women are lucky. There's almost You can do almost anything with Afro hair. Like, what's always been important to me was like, length, 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 length. But when I put a picture on social media, I still get the most likes when I have straight hair. I do find it a struggle. Like, I don't really know what products I should be using. Sometimes I wish there was like a YouTube video I can be like, go watch this and be like, go listen to this podcast and understand black hair. Your hair can say a lot about you. It can allow you to express who you are, where you come from, and can fill you with confidence. But there is more than meets the eye when it comes to black hair. There are so many different things you can do with black hair. You can have a long wig down to your bum one day, cornrows the next, bantu knots on Thursday, and then when you come into work on Friday with a twist out, You've got the whole office asking you, How do you change your hair so much? Black hair is unique because it is rich in history and is often used as a lens for discussing other issues such as race, gender, culture and identity. We've been led to believe that black hair is complicated and difficult to manage as it doesn't fit into European standards of beauty. And this is part of the reason why nearly every single black person has gone on a journey with their hair. A journey that can sometimes feel never ending, myself included. And I've been reading the book and stuff. And mm. even though I've been reading the book, it didn't really hit home to me until I watched this documentary and everyone on there was talking about how powerful their hair was. Mm -hmm. And I just sat there and I was like, but why, why do I keep having my hair like this? Because when I really think about it, none of my friends or none of my other family members still do this. Do you know what? You, you, you've hit it. A lot of people, my friends, everybody seems to be on their own natural hair journey. It's really interesting that you've watched this program. Do you know what it also reminds me of? You know, people that eat meat and they're like, uh, I eat meat forever, forever. And then you watch it's people can tell you about it all the time and you're like listen mind your business mm. have you eaten meat and then a lot of people have watched around a documentary and they're like i can never eat meat again i feel like you've you've hit that junction hi my name is leanne ali i'm a podcast producer creative aka your resident podcast queen and this is coiled the podcast that explores all the things I wish I knew about black hair, as me and my producer Sylvie dispel the myth that black hair is complicated. I guess I'm just thinking because I've always been natural, but you're effectively going on a brand new journey. Have you have you actually sat on a thought about what do you want to get out of this journey? You know what? I think this documentary is like giving me the kick that I need to actually want to transition 
I, I love how how we talk about it and we say, oh, I just do it. And it's like, well, do you actually just do it? Or there's always an extra reason, a psychological, there's, there's something in the environment, there's something that's happened that has made you feel that this is what it is. So I just, I want to see, I want to see your path. The one thing that I really want to touch on is how are you going to transition? That, that, I feel like that's one of the juicy questions. Mm, I mean... I'm not too, you know what? I'm really not too keen to cut my hair off at the moment. I don't know if that will change, but we, there must be other ways to do it. And I think I think we can figure it out on the way. No, no, if we, if we speak to the right people, get the right information, then I can't see why we can't get all of this information and move from there. Okay, that's the plan. Let's do it. Let's go. In this podcast, I'll be joined by black hair experts, as well as black women and men from across the UK, as we explore the history of Afro hair. Even during the era of the press and curl, that's still about a hostility to our natural hair and having to conform and control it. Where does human hair actually come from? The business and ethics of black hair? The truth about relaxers? How to maintain different hair textures, how hair forms part of black men's identity and the future of black hair. This is episode one, the history of Afro hair. Understanding your past can help you understand your present. And I think that the environments that you grow up in can have a massive impact on how you see the world. School in particular is a very formative time and my ideas around what was deemed beautiful was created not only through what I saw within popular culture but it really started in primary school. I grew up and have lived most of my life in suburban Reading and I still live there at the moment and for a very long time I was one of only three black girls in my class at school. I started relaxing my hair from the tender age of 10 as I was obsessed with having straight hair. So to start to figure out the reasons why I crave this look, I decided to speak to some of the friends that I grew up with to see if they had similar experiences. So I'm Stephanie. Um, Leanne is my oldest friend. <laughs> yeah, we're like born five days apart. Yeah, I literally known her all my life. <laughs> my name's Cornelia. I've known Leanne since reception what's that like age four gosh um but also our mums are second cousins I believe um so yeah it's a really long time and I feel like there was definitely a bond between being probably more than half the black people in the whole year <laughs> sitting right here at this table right now I remember actually in primary school on the playground at one point we were like doing a lot of hairdressing I remember one time we started bringing in our own things from home and I brought like a bag of like just you know combs and bits and bobs and I also brought like the products that we have at home which is like grease basically. Cause a lot of <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know it Corey you know it <laughs> because <laughs> what happened was I brought in all this stuff yeah one of these things was this hair grease which is like what I use on my hair and yeah, I think we were playing with each other's hair and like styling it and I'd put all this hair grease on these like white <laughs> girls' hair. <laughs> and obviously that didn't, you know, they don't think they really clocked or, like on the playground, you know. And I remember the next day, like one of the girls came back into school and she was like really angry. Like, like she spent ages like washing out my hair. It took ages to like get all this grease out of my hair. And because the grease belonged to me, 
um, I was like being blamed for, you know, her mum having spent hours like washing it out. And that moment did really stick out for me as well. as like feeling- a big other moment. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. It's crazy to reflect on these very othering moments that you don't realise at the time, but they really start to shape how you view yourself. We'll talk more about this later, but firstly, I wanted to take a trip down memory lane and talk about some of the hairstyles we used to do when we were at school. My hair's always been short, always, always been short. Like my mum used to cut my hair when I was in reception and I had like a boy, I had like a boy cut, like short, yeah, like short, short hair because my mum doesn't know how to like braid hair and stuff like that. And um, so yeah, she used to just cut her hair short and I remember just like, each time I'd get my hair cut, I'd come into school and everyone would be like, <laughs> you've got a boy cut, you've got boy hair. And like, obviously that was pretty upsetting, <laughs> being like five, six um, and being laughed at just because that's the only way like I knew how to, or my mum knew how to manage my hair and by extension me. I can definitely resonate with that. Like the day that you come in and you've changed your hair and it's, it's such a spectacle. It's such a, a big deal. And even more so if you sort of gone from like, like a longer style, um, I don't know, like between like braiding my hair, I'd like take a break and maybe just like have a bun. And I just felt like there was always a comment like, oh, yeah. where's your hair gone? Can I touch it? It's like, it's like you God. came in with like a petting zoo t-shirt. Like that's what yes. I say petting yes. zoo. Why are you touching? Like why, when will you all stop being so amazed <laughs> by my head? Like, so after that period when my mum was cutting it and it was like, boy cut kind of short all the time I think I started relaxing it and then getting it braided and stuff so my hair was always just like short but also thin it's probably the best way to describe it I never really mm. like loved my hair like I like I enjoyed getting braids and like having different styles and stuff and that was felt comfortable and like kind of accepted and that I guess other you know the f- few other black girls in school <laughs> also had braids and things like that sometimes um but yeah like just having my, I mean, it wasn't natural because it was relaxed, but having my just my hair out, it was something that I want. I th- felt I often wanted to hide. Definitely, like moving into secondary school, I remember times like having my hair out and just feeling a bit self-conscious because it was like it doesn't look presentable. It's kind of how I felt, um, which is really funny thinking about it because I actually don't think I really like. I've not really sat and thought about that before, <laughs> but yeah, it's uncomfortable. When yeah. You really- deep how these things made you feel like something that's just as basic as like your natural hair and its natural form like yeah you know in the way that you were made to feel but I think in primary school I do remember having cornrows from time to time but I think the majority of the time I had braids I remember I had like a little bit of a wave at the end of like mum can have the wavy ones <laughs> <laughs> she'll do like different colors um but yeah that's definitely how I felt most comfortable with my hair braided mm. and you know sometimes between braids you have to just wash your hair and go in with it like in a puff or a fro or something and you know you just have the feeling of sort of like oh here we go like <laughs> I know that like someone's gonna comment I definitely felt more subconscious and I think I did feel like less I don't know if I should say desirable because I don't know if I was really looking for like a, I wasn't looking for a husband <laughs> at like seven years old but like less pretty I guess yeah like, I know less like mean. my Barbies, less like yeah. the popular girls. Yeah, yeah, and, exactly. You know, like, yeah. yeah. What Corey was saying about feeling less pretty and less like the popular girls at school is something that really sticks with me and has done for a very long time. There's a very specific memory that sticks out to me, which was the very first time I felt undesirable. This was back in year one, so I could have only been around six years old at the time. 
and I remember it was Valentine's Day and every single one of the white girls in my class got a Valentine's Day card and I didn't get a single one. I was incredibly upset about this and this was the very first moment where I felt different to everybody else. At the time, I didn't consciously know that it was down to my hair, but I think the only thing that was different about me to everybody else was my skin, but also my hair. And I thought that was the blocker. Because you can't change your skin, but I was seeing other black women on TV and media with long straight hair, so I also thought that I could make the change. And I think this was the very first moment when I thought about really wanting to change my hair and look different. I remember it must have been around that age when I would also go to sleep sometimes, pulling my hair down by the size of my face in the hope that I would wake up one day and magically my hair would just be bone straight. <sighs> but how can a six-year-old feel like that, you know? Sharing these memories with each other, it's becoming clear that my time in a predominantly white school really shaped my self-perception. So I asked Steph and Corey the same thing, whether they think that our school experience impacted the way they feel about themselves and their hair today. Yeah, I guess similar to you, like just not really feeling good enough. Like it's like my hair always felt like less than than everybody else. And that I kind of probably did carry that through and like as I said always trying to hide it and stuff and like not being confident just to have it out as it was it just didn't it never felt good enough basically um but yeah I kind of I do love like the way my natural hair looks now and now it's more like I want to make it healthy so that I can have it out all the time I actually don't really want to wear braids all the time um but yeah that's the process <laughs> yeah I'll definitely say the way school influenced me I definitely had much more confidence I've had like my long braids in versus like my natural hair um and I think that carried through until uni there were more black people at uni but in a way it feels like a bit of a double-edged sword because I feel like even within the black community sometimes it's like oh you know your hair looks good today your edges are laid you know mm. it still sort of perpetuates you know some of the things that were thrown onto us when we were younger and even into the workplace as well I'd say so it's definitely it's it's a journey it's a journey mm. but I feel like it's gotten better more from me just being tired <laughs> I'm, <just> like, <laughs> I'm over it <laughs> yeah. what do you think your younger self would have really liked to know about black hair and what questions do you still have now I'd quite like to know the science behind it and why it needs different care because what I've only sort of really touched on it lightly but I feel like a lot of the sort of common styles like weaves and so on I find that they actually neglect afro hair in terms of the care that it needs. Mm. Yeah, I think for me, at least part of my hair journey has been trying to figure out how to keep my hair hydrated and like healthy, essentially, because because my mission for so long has been to increase the length and that's part of the process. That's obviously what I'm like personally curious about. But then it's also made me think about, well, if we're going to go like way back like what did our ancestors do like I don't know like it just made me think well obviously I has always been like this to a certain degree like I'm sure in terms of evolutionary terms like it hasn't changed drastically 
so then why is it that it's such a struggle for us now like what were they doing back then like to keep their hair i'm sure they weren't using five products exactly (laughs) exactly you know it's become such a lucrative business sometimes i think it's a little bit sus actually Mm. like do i really need all of that exactly (laughs) so it should surely it should be a bit it must be a bit like a simpler way of doing things and i don't know i just yeah i just want to find out more maybe back to basics is the key Mm. that's a good point How did our ancestors look after their hair? And what can we learn from the history of Afro hair and how this has impacted society's views towards black hair today? To understand this, I spoke to Dr. Kadian Powell. I am a lecturer in sociology and black studies at Birmingham City University. And my interests lie in fan studies, uh, black women's fandom, queer theory, sociology of black hair, and black feminism. I started off by asking Dr. Kadian, what were attitudes towards Afro hair before colonialism? What hairstyles did people do? And how did black people look after their hair? I guess I can tell you more about sort of pre-colonial parts of Western Africa, more specifically parts of Yoruba culture, that hair and the way people took care of hair was different in that it was not an industry (laughs) in the way that it is now. And it wasn't a paid profession. To learn how to take care of someone's hair was something that was highly regarded. And you could be of any gender and learn how to do hair and practice on children and people closely in age to you until you became comfortable. As Emma Dabiri says in her book, Don't Touch My Hair, the time it takes to do Afro hair is the time it takes. And that was the attitude um, at that time. Women in particular would spend time together if you're doing someone's hair. That was social time for people to, you know, braiding, knotting, threading. These were types of styles that uh, were performed. And the type of hairstyle that you had really depended on your tribe, what area you were in, and your social status as well. But as far as the styles, they varied, um, knotted, threaded, braided. One thing I will say is that the, the concept of us wearing our hair open they didn't do that. That was not a concept that they did. So the Afro is something that is uniquely Black and Western and not necessarily African. Now, of course, we, because of globalization, we have Africans in the African diaspora that have a adopted all kinds of hairstyle despite tribal affiliation because it's more stylized now and we're looking at more sort of like diasporic identities. But certainly back then to wear your hair out and open was not something that was done very much. It was uh, for practical reasons and also for um, beauty reasons because you could do far more detail Um, have embellishments be more ornate and get really fancy with what what we call now protective Mm -hmm. styles, but, you know, braided and threaded styles um, at at that time. According to Charlotte Mentz's 2020 book, Good Hair, in African communities pre-colonialism, products were made out of raw materials such as plant extracts and animal fats. Of course, they didn't have your standard leave-in conditioner that we have today, so butters and palm oil was used to moisturise their hair. And if you think about some of the braided hairstyles that we still wear today, they originate from African tribes. These tribes had been doing braided hairstyles for centuries. 
hair signified so much to these communities and, as Dr Cadian explains, became a social art. Think about Fulani braids and Bantu knots. This simply isn't just a name. These styles originated from the Fulani tribe and the Bantu-speaking tribes. Now that was before the slave trade. But how did colonialism change the way black people wore their hair? And how did this start to change attitudes towards Afro hair within society? Uh, Professor and historian Orlando Patterson has for a while been emphasizing that during the Atlantic slave trade, colonizers regarded Afro hair even more of a racial marker than they did skin color. But the term black, which became the signifier, allowed that relationship to be obscured, the relationship between hair and black identity or Afro identity. So that black just came to mean skin color, but actually it was even more specific to hair and the kind of wooliness that they um, abhorred. Patterson says, hair type rapidly became the real symbolic badge of slavery, although like many powerful symbols, it was disguised, in this case by the linguistic device of using the term black, which nominally threw the emphasis to color. No one who has grown up in a multiracial society, however, is unaware of the fact that hair difference is what carries the real symbolic potency. That passage is from um, Orlando Patterson's uh, book. He's a Harvard sociologist. So to speak further to that, I I know some people may think, what do you mean hair texture is even more of a marker than skin color? But It's very plain to see. If we look at Indian people, those from Sri Lanka, who, especially in the South, can often, certain tribes can have very dark skin. But because of their hair texture, which is just, you know, very, very different from Africans, they are never regarded as Black in any way, despite British attempts to lump Asian people into the Black category. They're never regarded as African or Black, and that's because of their hair, despite the similarity in skin color. Whereas if you look at a Black albino, extremely fair skin, fair everything, even hair, but the texture of the hair always gives away that Blackness, right? So that's the sense in which we mean it. So when I talk about the sociology of hair, Black hair is a lens through which we can view not only culture, identity, but also history. So that hair is a marker of the refusal of Black people, the Black body, to submit to the colonial order that Europeans tried to impose. So the way it stands, the way it exists, is a constant reminder that it's not been brought under submission into, you know, European-like rule. I find it fascinating that Afro hair was more of a marker of blackness than skin colour within the colonial order. If we compare this to the society that we live in today, this kind of explains why Afro hair has historically been othered. Based on this, I wanted to find out how black people's hair was treated during the slave trade and whether they were forced to change it and conform to different looks. In some instances, you have this ritualistic forced shaving of the hair and the head, which is always an exercise of dominance. 
those wanting to subjugate and distinguish between who has power and who does not and making enslaved people feel inferior. You then have the denial of things to clean oneself with or to properly take care of the hair. So you have Black people who are enslaved having to figure out ways of trying to take care of their hair and their personal hygiene when that's not a priority of the slave owners. Um, having to cover their hair, women especially, because it's seen as unsightly, and also women covering their hair to protect themselves from the heat and being out in the, the fields. Then you have a whole other class of laws. It was in the 18th century, so still during a time before slavery in um, the colonies and in the States really began ramping up uh, production, which we know, you know, sort of like really happens in the 19th century. There was a, a law in Louisiana and actually it predates itself in the Caribbean oh, really? first in the Spanish, yes, in the French colonies, the Tignon laws. So Louisiana in the States, they were inspired by these laws in the Caribbean that were instated in the late 17th century. It was 1786, but I have to tell people that this was not an extremely rigid law that was enforced to the point of like jailing or anything like that. But it was a social law that you were expected to follow. At the time, they had a Spanish governor, Governor Rio. There are two things that happened. One, he wanted to stop the marriage of European men to non-European either mixed race, native, or African women. You have to remember that Louisiana at the time is being controlled by both the Spanish and the French. Um, so that's during a time where you have British, French, Spanish, all of them being players in the what became the United States. So that was one. He wanted to stop these marriages because he wanted to make sure that Black women and even mixed race women were sort of like left out of those very marriageable prospects. Two, you had white women urging Governor Rio to also pass some kind of law to prevent these Black women and mixed race women from being able to walk around in these very regal ways and very fashionable ways because they were very beguiling and they were com they were competition, hot competition for these women. And we have to understand that at that time and still to this day, white women have been socialized to believe that they are the pinnacle of femininity, right? That femininity and whiteness go hand uh, in hand. So why would I be competing with a woman who is practically inferior to me for marriageable European men? So the tignon, or what we know as the chignon, is basically a head covering that mixed race and Black women were required to wear. Even mixed race women who were not enslaved were required to wear this. Thus, having a physical marker of their blackness instated on them and to mark them in society as being of the Negro class. So again, this points to a kind of reinforcing blackness via black hair and its representations and it's like its aesthetic uh, communication. This actually explains so much. 
The Tingnong laws are a great example of black women being seen in society as inferior, while white women have been socialised to believe they're superior. This really emphasises the lack of equality that we can still sometimes see appearing today. I mean, it's these attitudes that develop characters like your Karen or Becky with the good hair. For me personally, as I described earlier, this idea of being undesirable growing up in comparison to my white peers, I realise now is an idea that has been socialised for hundreds of years. You move into an era after the end of slavery, definitely the early 20th century, where you move into the kind of the respectability era. And so that, the pencil test and the paper bag test, which is more for skin color, um, but they kind of go hand in hand, speak to that trying to distinguish between those who could gain affinity within white spaces or whiteness who were seen as respectable, being the ones to gain access and then sort of like bring that back to the rest of um, black people, a kind of yeah. trickle down <laughs> acceptability, which, you know, never worked. The comb test was used in the US. Businesses would hang a fine tooth comb outside their doors and if the comb couldn't easily pass through a person's hair due to their hair's texture, they would not be allowed in. Similarly, in apartheid South Africa, they had what was known as the pencil test. This was where a pencil was pushed through the person's hair and how easy it could pass through the hair determined whether the person had passed or failed the test. If the pencil remained in the hair, the person was classified as black, which meant that they were unable to access some of the privileges that their white counterparts had. So those tests were more kind of intra-racial ways of distinguishing between who was seen as desirable and desirability, respectability became how much of whiteness can you adopt in order to prove yourself as worthy and valuable, prove that you are no longer an uncivilized um, heathen as colonizers tried to describe Africans as. There was a long period of that and you get into the Madam C.J. Walker and the straightening combs. That was all part of that respectability era. And I don't fault Black purveyors of that time and inventors because they were literally just working within the circumstances that they had and doing their best. And at that time, it was revolutionary to be seen as respectable, to show white people that, listen, less than 30, 40, 20, 30 years ago, my people came out of slavery. You gave us nothing to start our lives and look at what we have made of ourselves. So that was very radical for them at that time. So it was a very important time. So we shouldn't look back on it with disdain. Every um, generation has an era where they consider radicality to be something very different. And it depends on the political context of, of the time. We'll hear more from Dr. Kadian after this short break. So that gives some context on how colonialism shunned and policed Afro hair. We've actually only come so far in our society that we still feel the lasting impact of colonialism in several aspects of our lives, including attitudes towards Afro hair. 
Let's now bring this forward to when black people started coming to the UK as part of the Windrush generation in the 1940s and 50s. What was life like for black people during this time? And how did this impact how they wore their hair? It's a tragedy in a lot of ways, because from looking at some of the photographs of the early Windrush generation, they were arriving at a time in history when you got dressed up to travel and they came in their best wear here, right? And they came here believing that they were coming here at the invitation right, of the government to work and to help this nation. But what they encountered was entirely different, a society that was extremely hostile to them and attempted to ghettoize them into certain sections of the city, certainly in London and other parts of the UK um, as well, having it hard to find housing or just outright unwelcome. So that was certainly a shock. What I observe is that most of the women who came here at that time period, late 40s, sort of early 50s, a lot of them had pressed hair and not a lot of women wearing natural hair. Some who did, but I don't think they considered it natural in the way that we do. But even still, their hair would still be in like buns or, you know, sort of like very curled under. So very controlled, you know, in that way. As the population grew, as the politics of this time started to change, the idea of Black identity and a kind of solidarity begins to build in the 60s, especially in this country the hair starts to change (laughs) with it. And I think that that is really incredible. And just, again, goes back to this idea of hair being this marker of Black identity and a celebration of no longer being bound by European expectations and rules and trying to live a little bit more openly, a little bit more freely as your, your Black self. Black men were also believing in this, perhaps not conscious of it, but they were. They're taking in the same messages that we are about beauty and desirabilities in a country that whether your hair is natural or not is going to be hostile to you anyway. I don't know that we've ever really had a time since the start of colonialism where attitudes towards Black hair wasn't hostile. It's a little bit better now, but it's always been the case. Because Black hair is such a visual symbol and a communicator of our identity and both as part of our our bodies as well, that its existence is always reminding people, not just of our Blackness, but of their whiteness. So the fact that we exist as this kind of other always reminds white people, white society, white supremacy, that there is an alternative (laughs) way of living and being. Because it sort of like flies in the face of the lie of white supremacy because it resists everything that white supremacy is about. And so that's why there's that hostility, that attempt to control it, to cover it, to beat it into submission, to relegate it, to threaten it with fines or firings or, you know, not being allowed into certain spaces because 
it just refuses to comply. Chile, it's a lot, you know. I mean, being a black person in the UK, you really come to realise that a lot of the inequality that you experience can all be drawn back to colonialism. I mean, some people would say it's just hair, but to black people, it's more than that. Our hair is rich in history and a history of discrimination. As Dr. Kadian describes, attitudes towards Afro hair have always been hostile. And I was socialised to think that my hair was inferior growing up, as the Eurocentric look was shown to me to be supreme, not only within the media and popular culture, but also growing up in a predominantly white area. The exact same messages were being communicated. We have come a long way in some respects. And looking forward, I also wanted to get a real feel for the trends and attitudes towards black hair just before my time. And I thought, why not speak to someone who lived through these times and has seen the hair industry and black women evolve over the decades? So I spoke to Derek Clements, who is an award-winning and world-renowned hairstylist who's been styling Afro hair for 45 years. I became the first Afro hairdresser to be nominated for uh, Artist Afro Artist of the Year uh, by the Hairdressers Journal. He was trained at Splinters, which was the first high-end Afro hair salon in Mayfair. It was the go-to black salon for black celebs. And women from all across the country used to go here. Even my mum went there a couple times, you know, all the way from Reading. Because of the clientele in those days and, you know, the level of uh, professionalism, we were attracting not just your your local girl who was aspiring to come to the West End, but we had lots of celebrities, we had the Diana Rosses, we had the Marvin. I mean, whoever they were in the world, in, in, in show business, in politics, they all came to Splinters. It was founded by Winston Isaacs. First of all, Winston uh, was a Sassoon-trained uh, black hairdresser. So he kind of shifted the bar in terms of introducing the cut. He would actually transition the techniques that he would have learned in white European hair onto Afro hair to achieve what we now call balance, shape and movement. In other words, get Afro hair to move and to bounce in a way that your Caucasian uh, chick would do. Right. Secondly, Splinters was, and I say iconic, it, it was palatial in those days. It's a well-kitted, well-kitted salon, well-fitted out, beautifully designed, unlike most black salons in those days. It was kind of locally, like you think of Harlesden, you think of Brixton, you think of uh, North London, but we were in the West End, so of course the decor, the ambiance was absolutely on, on, on par with anything in those days in the West End. Derek started his hairdressing career in the 70s. A time that, according to my parents, was one where you'd hear the Jackson 5 and Bay City Rollers on the radio, Starsky and Hutch on one of the three TV channels on TV, as well as Roots, an early representation of black people on mainstream TV. But what was society like for black women in the 70s? And how did this influence how they wore their hair back then? If you think of the trauma that black women would have experienced just being black yeah. in a white country and you're working for the corporate, a, a corporate environment, then you would no doubt want to emulate your white contemporary. So therefore, uh, black women wanted their hairs then to behave like their European contemporaries. And I'll give an example. Uh, Lady Di, hairstyle, 
was very fashionable amongst black women in those days. Really? Right, yeah, Lady Di. They come to you and they ask you to do a Lady Di. So you visualize a Lady Di, that lovely kind of quiff, side parting, like a little bob, flicking to the sides. Black women wanted that style. <laughs> and any other white celebrity that was in fashion at the time. So you had lots of long styles and lots of layered styles. Think of Farrah Fawcett. She, mm-hmm. The hair was always flicking in the wind and blowing in the wind, and you see her shaking her hair. We did those styles in Afro hair. So black people being the great people they are, and, and obviously we're very creative, we relax the hair. We would, mm-hmm. we would then manipulate the hair, we'll take Afro hair, and straighten that hair, what Chris, Chris Rock <laughs> eventually called creamy crack. So we got the relaxer <laughs> in those days. And once the hair is straightened, then you could uh, obviously morph that hair, that texture into new, into new shapes and new designs. Black women all had choices. And I think with those choices, she always wants something else. And so the relaxer would have been convenient, if you like. Uh, so they thought convenient in terms of, I guess, for the workplace. Uh, but bearing in mind, there were something then called uh, Afrophobia. Afro has always been a threat in many, many ways. So you can't blame the sisters for wanting then to uh, get the hair to conform to new environments. Okay, so even though the Afro was trending, you had, you had locks, uh, a sister who works in a corporate environment, they'd want to uh, look the part, if you like. They'd do anything to the hair so that it looks pleasing, if you like, to the eye of the um, you know, the, the corporate environment. and But having said that, Afro hair was always around. I think the natural look wasn't, it's not something, it's not new. Uh, you think of um, Angela Davis, you think of the Black, the, the Black Panther movement, and even way before that. It's interesting to reflect on how much has changed since the 70s, but also how much hasn't. But what about the 80s? An iconic decade full of big hair, bright outfits, and incredible music. From Grandmaster Flash to Whitney and Prince, this is how black hair evolved during this decade. And then of course the whole thing changed as black women were demanding if you like more a more natural feel and away from the chemical, we saw the Jerry Curl came into being in the late 70s, running about the 80s. And the Jerry Curl gave you something closely to your natural hair, but with a, a curl, a wave. So again, this thing about trauma, somehow in the back of her mind, somehow she wanted the hair to always be somewhat softened or, or, or lighter, if you like, or more curly or wavy. Somehow, I, d- I don't know why, perhaps to please others, but that seemed, that seemed to be the trend. Even today, the average girl would, would much rather her hair to be a, a curl or a wave as opposed to a coil. Mm. And coil is the tighter texture, isn't it? Which is, in fact, the better texture because it's very, very, it's, it's, it's springy, it's bouncy, it's malleable, it has elasticity. Uh, but somehow there's a preference for the wave or the curl. And that brings us to the 90s, the decade I was born. I remember it being a time where there was a boom of black representation within popular culture. There were so many more black TV shows like Sister Sister, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. R&B was king. And in the 90s, there were so many more black music stars making moves. People I could see myself in. On TV, in movies, almost everywhere in the media, it was lit. However, I was also just seeing loads of straight hair which I didn't actually realise was not real at the time. I was young, give me a break. And I now realise that 
it's from that representation in the media that was telling me that straight hair was the preferred look at that time. The only TV show where I saw something different was in Moesha, where she had braids in every single episode. I wanted to find out from Derek how these trends in popular culture impacted attitudes towards hair in the 90s. I think you did see a change, um, a massive change. So, you, so we went from the Jerry Curl. And I think, don't forget, weaves were, were, were trending. Again, what is it? I, I don't know. Is it, is it pressure brought to bear on the black sisters? You're working on TV. Is it somehow in the back of your consciousness, in your mind, you, perhaps you think uh, a straight style or maybe a weave would be a bit, a, a bit more appealing, as you said, more issues to wear the braids. Braids were always there as a last resort. We always use braids at the salon to help a sister transition, okay, or use the braids to do a weave. So weaves were big in the 90s. Weaves were massive. And then, of course, after that, you know, we had the uh, uh, the lace fronts, which was, again, very big, huge. Wigs were also very fashionable. Lots of black women had hairstyles like any other white woman. So you think of a weave, uh, you could so your hair could look like a black girl and black... Think of Beyonce. You see her hair. It's a big... It's wavy. It's in the wind. It's moving. It's in the wind. It's 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 gorgeous, and that her hair could look like any other white artist, white any other white person. So obviously, uh, I think whatever that was trending in those days, that's what we actually created. But I will say, when you think of weaves and wigs, again, I think there's a tendency for those in the community to kind of condemn sisters who wear wigs and weaves. Again, thinking that she's trying to be somebody else. No, she isn't. And, and I'm going to defend the sisters here. She isn't because she was straightening her hair and she was wearing wigs on her hair before everybody else was on the scene. Why do I say that? Before Europeans was on the scene, we've had almost 3,000 years of black dynasty. And we know for a fact, just by looking at history, Cleopatra, for instance, was a Candace queen. Her hair was bobbed. Who did that? Her hair was cut into a bob. It was straight. Who did that? Africans, black people, right? And in, and of course, there were no London, or there were no Milan, there was no Paris, there was no New York. There were just Africans in Africa at the time. So we're not trying to copy, we're not trying to emulate, we're just trying to be ourselves. So we call that women, renewal, and empowerment. It's quite simple. In the later 2000s, I remember being in my teens and seeing a lot of the white girls at school experiment with their hair and dye it in really cool colours. And um, of course, I wanted to do the same. I wanted to get on that bandwagon. I mean, I wasn't going to go as far as Rihanna's fire engine truck red hair, which I didn't realise was a wig at the time. But I really wanted blonde highlights, you know, like Kerry Hilson in the Knock You Down video. I mean, I don't know what I was thinking, but... Understandably, my mum gave a firm no to dye my hair, so instead I started experimenting with random coloured clip-ins into my relaxed hair. Now I'm pretty sure my eclectic hair choices weren't what everybody else was doing, so I found out who was setting the trends in the 2000s. There were two artists in those days, in the 2000 that were that were trending. Um, Tony Braxton and Rihanna. So Tony Braxton had a pixie, right? And that, and again, that pixie haircut is no is no different to Dorothy Dandridge way back in the what forties. So she was an iconic black actress, Hollywood actress, American actress. She would have been the forerunner to Halle Berry, 
that pixie, that, that, that definitive cut that she wore, you kind of see Halle Berry wearing that same cut in the 2000s, but, but more tweaked, if you like, and that was fashionable. And then you had Rihanna with the asymmetrical pixie, one side's really definitive, the back is graduated, and the one side's heavy and long. That style, I think every black woman wore that style. Even You think of Fantasia, you think of mm. Tony Braxton wore that style. I mean, literally every black artist would wear And I somehow I think short haircuts on a black woman just looks fantastic. Looking at the 2010s, I think we really saw a shift towards natural hair. And it's around the same time that social media and YouTube started becoming much more prominent. Black hair bloggers started to emerge. There's a huge natural hair community starting to grow on YouTube. And I remember discovering black hair blogs for the first time. The one I used to read all the time was Black Girl Long Hair. And the first hair blogger that I followed was Miss Robin Nella. These were all women that had beautifully long Afro hair. And at this time, I was still fully committed to relaxed hair. And I was just really obsessed with just trying to grow it as long as possible. And that was me. But for a lot of other black women, they started to see others go on their natural hair journey and join the movement. I asked Eric why he thinks we saw this change around this time. I mean, it's, it's all about consciousness, and I think it's it's people awakening. I mean, there's, there's a great term, awoke. Everyone's everyone is awakened, I, I, and I think somewhere in the back of the black woman's mind and consciousness, she's changing the narrative. For instance, I use a term that I call collapsing the trust to claim your tress. And why do I mean by that? The the Afro hair industry has been pretty much monopolized by other entities other than our own. And I think somewhere in the black woman's consciousness, she's not happy about that. And so you see a shift towards the natural hair. And also there's a, a great demand for homegrown hair products. You see products in America that became huge, people like Carol's Daughter, many, many, many other brands. You see now a huge trend in London with people making their own products because the sisters want to somehow support their own. And I think that's where it's at, actually. I think it's all about owning the brand, owning the industry, pretty much. The hairdressing industry is worth £2.5 billion. We, we don't even get 5% of that money. So I think somewhere in the black woman's consciousness, she understands the dynamic. And I think she's about to claim that money back. And the only way to get it back is to own your hair. So she's collapsed the trust. And the trust simply means trusting other people to provide products for your hair. Whoever were manufacturing products for black hair did not care, as far as I'm concerned. Mm. And the reason why I say they did not care some of the most nefarious chemicals was used in Afro hair products. And lately, you know for yourself that the sisters are aware of parabens and sulfates. Those are not friendly to Afro hair. So in my range, the Derek Clement hair care range, we keep away from lanolin, from uh, parabens, from sulfates, all those chemicals that were used in the past. And that's perhaps the reason why black hair didn't grow to its fullest potential. Remember back in the day, who did her hair? Grandmothers, aunts, mothers, sisters, okay? Her hair was done by those people. Then she looked to the industry, she looked to the high street, if you like, for products. The man in the high street doesn't understand what she needs. He owns the shops, but he doesn't understand what she needs. He doesn't understand her, her requirement. He can't even, you can't serve her, you can't explain to her, you can't provide any, any advice or any 
information to her. So somehow, I think she's, take, she's taking the information back into her own hand. She's manufacturing products for herself. She's using natural things. She realizes that in her own industry, there are sustainable ingredients to heal and help her hair. So hence the reason why she collapsed the trust she had in others and she's claiming her tress because the tress needs much more sustainable products. As I said, the natural hair movement, I'd like to see a lot more of that and more hair care. And that's the maintenance, right? And not just the, but the advice as well. People, they need, to be, they need to be educated and informed. And you combine that with, with the maintenance, you can't go wrong. The only way for us to take that power back is to keep being our mm -hmm. black ass selves <laughs> as much as we can. And also insisting that our governments and whatever, whether it's through workplace policies that often discriminate against our hair, whether it's through the Equality Act, which I know that there's uh, an attempt being made now to protect this part of our identity and to never stop doing that. But I think living openly, unapologetically, as much as possible to me is the only way. I definitely see the movement now as certainly being connected to a larger black liberation movement, right? And we're and this is another era of black liberation movement. Like it looked a little differently back in the late 60s, 70s, um, and this is just today's iteration. And freeing yourself of the poisonous rhetoric that you are somehow inferior or less beautiful or not worthy. And it's a very difficult and hard thing to do and to confront. And I understand that not everybody wants to, to do that, but I, I do see it as a, a part of a larger kind of freedom movement. Clasping the trust and claiming the tress. You know what? It's about time I took this power back for myself and really let go of the idea that my hair is attached to my beauty and really let go of this idea that my hair is lesser than. Speaking to Dr. Cadian and Derek has really helped me understand how attitudes towards black hair have evolved over the decades and how history, and in particular colonialism, has impacted this. Knowledge is power and with this information, I can move forward and start to unlearn some of these ideals that have been instilled in me for so long. And I hope you've learned something too. It's gonna to take some time to unlearn these attitudes that have been instilled in me for so, so long, but I'm ready for it. And you know what? You guys are coming along with me on this journey, aren't you? So we'll do this together. Make sure you come back next week as on the next episode of Coiled, I will be exploring where human hair actually comes from. People will collect the hair that falls out during brushing and combing. So this is called combings. Thank you for listening to Coiled. Coiled is hosted and produced by me, Leanne Alley. The assistant producer is Sylvie Carlos. The theme music and closing music was composed by Oni Iroha. If you do anything after listening to this episode, share it with a younger sibling, cousin, friend, anyone you think needs to hear this so that we can empower the next generation to fully embrace and love their Afro hair. Because all hair is good hair. 
make sure you listen and subscribe to Coiled wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. You can follow us on Instagram at Coiled Podcast so you never miss an episode. You can also use the hashtag Coiled Podcast on Twitter to let us know your thoughts on the episode. What have you learned? What surprised you? Let's keep this conversation going. Until then, I'll see you next time.